You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. There we go. Hey, I hear myself now, which is good, I think. Uh, yeah, good morning. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at The Village. Good to see you guys today. Um, yeah, we're just going to pop in, but if you would, uh, join me in prayer as we uh, begin to unpack the Word of God together. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for the people that you've gathered. Thanks for the folks that uh, you'll be sending out of here today uh, and even this week um, to camps and on sabbaticals and all the things. God, we thank you for the men and the women and the kids who aren't here today, those that are part of your church but aren't gathered. We pray for them, uh, healing if they are sick, comfort if they're suffering, uh, rest um, if they are away. Um, God, this morning is yours, and we hand it over to you. Uh, I just ask that you would help us to set our minds on good things, um, not because we get to ignore the bad stuff, not because we have to put on a face or pretend like things aren't hard, things don't hurt, um, sin isn't real, any of that stuff, God, but just like the resurrection, you died and you came back to life. And so you can go through anything and everything with us. And this morning, as we read about the goodness of your gospel, the fact that you didn't just die, but you rose and you ascended, Father, I pray that you would set our minds on good things, on Jesus, on the gospel, uh, that no matter where we might be, whatever hard things we carry with us today, that we would know that you are with us, you can be in it with us, you can pull us through, and we can have joy and peace about the good news of a king who has risen and has ascended and will come back to gather his people. Um, thank you for today. Thanks for your spirit who's with us. Do your work. Uh, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this illustration is courtesy of Doug Lapina, uh, as it will be clear here in just a minute because it's a history uh, illustration. All right, so um, in, in 1922, uh, Howard Carter discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun, uh, that's how you say it, or King Tut, as we commonly know him. Uh, but before they knew exactly like what they had found, they had to kind of like carefully make their way through this, this dig site, this excavation site. There was chamber after chamber and, and sealed door after sealed door that they had to work their way through. And each time, instead of just kind of like plowing their way, like through a wall into the thing that was coming up next, uh, Carter, he made uh, a tiny hole in the upper right corner of of the door, and he would stick a, a testing rod in there, just an iron rod that you poke around in there, see if anything's in there. Uh, and, and then he would also hold up a, a burning candle to see if, like, any of the air in there was breathable, right? So if he held the candle up and it went out, probably not a good sign, probably don't want to walk into that room, whatever's in there. Uh, but when everything seemed to be okay, he would, he would widen the hole just a little bit more, and then he would, uh, he would peer in so he could get a good look. And at the last door that he came to, uh, he held the candle up to the hole just to, to get a glimpse of what was inside, and Carter, uh, he must have stood there longer than he anticipated, because uh, one of the men who was with him had to ask, like, well, like, can you see anything in there? And, and he said, yes, marvelous things. It's the famous line that he said. He wrote this in his journal. He said, it was some time before I could see the hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker. But as soon as my eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before me with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped upon one another. There was gold 
everywhere. There were ebony statues and alabaster jars. There was elaborate furniture and giant paintings on the walls, jewelry. He said it looked like the prop room of, of an old theater or an old opera room from a civilization that had just uh, vanished one day. There was just stuff everywhere. And then inside there were four nested shrines, each one smaller than the next. And in, inside those was a sarcophagus. You've probably seen a picture of that somewhere. And inside the sarcophagus there was a coffin and then a coffin and then a coffin. And inside the third coffin, finally, the body of King Tut. It took years and years to like catalog some like 5,000 artifacts that they found inside of that thing and to open up everything that they found. But the moment that that expedition team peered into, into that room, they had made one of, if not arguably the, the most uh, important archeological discovery ever. But that's all that it was. And that's all that it ever would be. A magnificent find of marvelous things of the past because that's where everything in it stayed. It would have been a different story if uh, everything was there except King Tut, right? Or if they like found him hanging around, like eating dates and doing crossword puzzles or something inside his tomb. Or if he was like hanging out outside and he was like, oh yeah, you want to go see that old thing? Like, I'll give you the tour. Like, just come with me this way. That would have been something a little bit more than an archaeological discovery. If he had been somewhere else, it would have changed everything. But the reality is, he, he is where he was. His, his remains sealed in a coffin, in a coffin, in a coffin. The Buddha was cremated. Muhammad is buried in, in brick and stone. You can pick up a guru, a god of your choosing, uh, and, and you'll, you'll either find like no earthly trace of them or, or you'll find what's left of them. The stuff of myth or, or real marvelous things that simply never made it out of the past. But Jesus is different, or so we say. Uh, that all depends on where he is. Right? Is, is he dead? Is he buried? Is he missing? Did he come back to life? Or is he today, this morning's focal passage? It, it lets us explore those possibilities and, and what they mean for Jesus and for us and for the good news that we say that we build our life on. And so the main idea this morning we're going to look at is that where Jesus is today shapes our faith in every way. And yes, it rhymes. There you go. All right, uh, let's start by looking at the first chunk of our focal passage this morning. John 20, uh, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is John, uh, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, uh, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's a very important detail that he decided to include in his own gospel. Really funny. Uh, and stooping to look in, uh, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. 
for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Point one this morning is this, that if Jesus is missing, we have nothing. To set the scene a bit, Jesus had been crucified. He had just been crucified, beaten, stripped, hung in the, in the air by nails run through his hands and his feet. He had a spear run through his side just to make sure that he was, in fact, dead. All of this happened not because he was guilty of any crime, um, but because he was guilty of being the son of God and the king of the Jews. He was God in the flesh, and that, that wasn't a crime. It's just who he was. But the people, including those who were supposed to be his people, they rejected him. They hated him. They wanted him gone. Years of ministry, miracles and preaching and teaching, compassion, authority, forgiving sins, intimate moments with sinners and the sick and the poor, drawing crowds and and amens and hallelujahs and all that stuff, a band of faithful followers. It all ended with a handful of mourners, his mom and his best friend and a few other women who were brave enough to show their face, all huddled together at an execution ground outside the city, not far from the beam of wood that had just hoisted Jesus into the air and was holding him there until he took his final breath. And after he died, a few unfamiliar faces uh, suddenly like come out of, out of the woodwork. There was uh, a member of a Jewish council named Joseph, who we'd never seen before, and a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who we'd only seen a couple times. These guys show up in defiance of their, of their colleagues uh, in order to honor Jesus by giving him a proper burial, and so that's, that's what they did. Peter, nowhere, not Peter, not John, not James, the brother of Jesus, or, or any of the other main characters in these gospels show up, but Joseph and Nicodemus, two side characters, get his body, they prepare it for burial, and they carry it into a garden where there is an unused tomb, and they lay Jesus' body with burial spices and cloth all wrapped up uh, inside of it, and they, they cover the entrance with a giant rock. A couple of days pass, and then early in the morning on Sunday, uh, another unfamiliar name pops up, Mary from Magdala, or Mary Magdalene. John mentions that, that she was one of the women who was there at Jesus' crucifixion, but other than that, she gets zero screen time from John. We've not heard about her, anything from her until right now. She's not mentioned by him anywhere else, no introduction. And, and I think that's probably because by this point in time when John is writing this account, Mary Magdalene needs no introduction. Her story, like the account of her story, is, is known. People have heard this story over and over that's been circulating for years that Jesus early in his ministry had healed her by casting not, not one, not two, but seven demons out of her. And from that moment on, she followed Jesus along with lots of other women who, who supported him, not just with like moral support, but actually supported him financially, like in his ministry. Read more about that in some of the other gospels. But, but Mary Magdalene was not a household name right after Jesus died. And yet she's in the spotlight here. She's up early uh, after the Sabbath so she can get uh, to Jesus' tomb and, and finish anointing his body. Like uh, Nicodemus and, and Joseph, they were like in a hurry to get Jesus' body uh, buried before sundown. They, they probably left some stuff to do. They, they were doing a bit of a rush job. And so she was going there before it was probably really early, too dark to see much of anything to just finish the job. And Jesus' story could have just ended there. This passage could have just been the end of John's account. 
like with a call for faithful followers of Jesus to, to make a pilgrimage out to a tomb somewhere in, in the Near East to go visit the remains of Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Get up one morning in your hotel room in Jerusalem, right, grab some continental breakfast while you're there, on your way out, hop on a tour bus and go visit the remains, the resting place of the one that we are told to find our eternal life in. And that might sound weird or crazy, but that's not too far off, maybe, from what Mary and the other disciples were thinking life after Jesus' death might actually look for them. All right, so there are, there are a couple of ways that, that Jesus could be missing here as we're looking at this today. And, and one of those ways, if he's simply missing from this life, Right? If he's simply missing from among the dead, if he stayed dead, if he died and stayed that way, like we would have nothing. This is uh, what Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep or died uh, in Christ, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been to Kelly's Bakery before or know of it or been there uh, a lot, but our family, we, we love that place. It's our favorite, favorite donut place. The donuts there are the best. Uh, usually they're only open in the morning, but on the first uh, weekend of the month, they stay open late on Friday and Saturday nights. And so uh, our family, we have a tradition of hitting up Kelly's Bakery uh, at some point on one of those weekends. And if Holden's with me, uh, when, we, when we pick him up, Holden's our second oldest kid, uh, like he usually cites some part of a, uh, of a joke um, that we have told. It's a, it's a Mitch Hedberg joke, all right? You might already know what I'm talking about if you know it. Uh, it goes this way. I'm not going to say it like him. It's just way funnier. Uh, he says like, hey, I bought a donut and they gave me a receipt for the donut. I don't need a receipt for the donut. I'll just give you the money, you give me the donut, end of transaction. We do not need to bring ink and paper into this. I just can't imagine a scenario where I would have to prove that I bought a donut. First, Mitch Hedberg uh, is not a family-friendly comedian, okay? So my kids know that one joke. Do not make Mitch Hedberg a family fun night. I am not responsible for whatever happens after that. Secondly, the resurrection is a receipt. It's proof that there was a transaction that Jesus really did, as Colossians says, cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He did pay it all, right? The debt being our life of sin and rebellion and even just disregard of, of the Lord. And we owe him our life in return. The wages of sin is death. But there... There was a transaction on the cross, and it was final. And if Jesus really did pay it all, then Jesus couldn't stay dead because sin and death itself would have no claim over him anymore. If Jesus was anything more than a martyr or some marvelous historical footnote, then, then his death had to be accompanied by a return to life, a resurrection. But if it wasn't, and if Jesus stayed dead, it's not just that we wouldn't know for sure whether he did what he said he would do. It's that we would know for sure that he hadn't. The life that was in him and meant to be ours, that would have been gone. The light of the world, extinguished. The vine that we were supposed to abide in as branches, dried and withered and dead. And if there's even a little bit of weight, 
that sits on you as you're imagining what that might feel like, then imagine what Mary was feeling on her way to Jesus' tomb. That wasn't a hypothetical for her in her mind. That was her reality. Jesus was dead. But at least she knew where, her, where, his, where his body was until she realizes that she doesn't. And this is the second way that he can be missing is he's just missing in action, which is just as bad, right? His body's gone. Mary rushes to the disciples. Peter and John run to the tomb and they find the burial cloths and the towel that was covering his face. They find, it, they find it folded up nice and neat, but no Jesus anywhere. And I just imagine Peter and John like both trying to piece together like a crime scene, uh, like forensic evidence stuff. Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson trying to solve the crime. Where is the body of Jesus? And they both quietly, kind of on their own, they, they put the pieces together in their own mind. The crazy thing is that they look at the same evidence they arrive at different conclusions, and yet it still has the same impact. They've got nothing. Back in uh, 1922, before Howard Carter had dug his way into the heart of King Tut's tomb, the first sign they were onto something was a, it was a step, like a stone step underneath a hut, and slowly but surely they dug out an entire staircase that sank into the ground at the bottom. They confirmed that they had found the front door to somebody's tomb. They didn't know whose it was at the beginning. Uh, and they knew they needed to keep this find safe from looters and grave robbers. And so, do you know what they did? They rolled a boulder in front of it. When Mary showed up that morning, the giant stone that had been rolled in front of Jesus' tomb to keep grave robbers out had been rolled away. And no doubt, grave robbers was the first thing that they thought of when this happened. Mary herself said, someone's taken him away. And we don't know where they put the body. That's where her mind went, is, is to there. Grave robbing was such a problem. It was like a, 10 years later after this, it was made a capital offense. You'd be killed for grave robbing. Now, we don't know what, what Peter thought when he went in to and came out of Jesus' tomb. But chances are he thought the grave had been tampered with or robbed or for some reason somebody didn't want Jesus' body in that tomb. Either way, what did he do? He just went home. John, on the other hand, he, he spent a few more minutes adding things up in his head. Uh, none of the fancy linen strips were gone, that Jesus' body would have been wrapped in. It's weird that someone would have unwrapped him, taken the body, but then not the, the fabric, which they probably could have sold for something. And there was the face cloth. It was folded neatly. Maybe it was a swan or a duck or something, or maybe it was just a nice, neat little square. Don't know. But, but it had been carefully set aside from the other fabric. And John Snake and Man, like these robbers were really tidy over here, and really messy over here, and they weren't very good at their job because they left all the valuable stuff behind. And so John writes about himself, which is funny, that he wasn't counting the dots from the Old Testament yet, like that said the Messiah would need to be raised from the dead. Nobody was connecting those dots at that point in time, but, but just from the evidence at the crime scene alone, John pieced together that Jesus had woken up and neatly maybe taken the, the face cloth off and folded it up, and he shed all the stuff that he was wrapped in, and he walked himself out of the tomb. John believed in the resurrection before he understood anything about it. But here's the thing. His reaction was the same as Peter's. John believed that Jesus was alive somehow, 
and he went quietly back home. The guy that wrote this book, he cracked the case, but then he, he said nothing, and he's telling on himself here a little bit. Um, th- there might be skeptics with us in the room today, uh, and we're glad that you are here and that you're with us. And I want you to know that John was persuaded of the resurrection not because the Bible said so, but because of the physical evidence in front of him. And there's more where, where that came from. And John's writing all of this, this whole gospel account, so that uh, you and us, all of us, might believe and have life in his name. You are John's intended audience, and you are Jesus' intended audience. And there are some believers in here today who live like skeptics. Belief that Jesus rose from the dead moves your soul maybe not one little bit at the moment. It compels you like John to nothing because maybe like John, like just because Jesus is alive, it doesn't mean that you know where he is. Where is he? What does it all mean? Maybe he's back in action, but he is, he is missing in action as far as you can tell. And maybe you've not always felt this way, but at least right now, maybe you don't see his footprints or his fingerprints, uh, his presence or his power showing up in ways that you might expect in your life. There's no trail of breadcrumbs where you can go follow to, to find him. He's not busting down your door. We'll actually talk a little bit about that next week, which is fun. Uh, and even though you might, uh, might know that your sins are forgiven, it still feels like sin has power over you. And so, hey, resurrection, that's great. But if in this life it means nothing more than a, a marvelous thing that happened to someone else, why should I care? Even if Jesus is alive, if he's still missing, then I've, I've got nothing more today than I had before. And I get that. And I'm not here to argue with you, argue you into feeling differently or believing differently. That's not how I work. That's not how any of this works. I just want you to know that you're not, you're not just seen here this morning in this church, but you are seen in the scriptures, right? You're here in this text. There's a, a reason why the spotlight, those shifts to Mary and her encounter with Jesus, because what's true for Mary, what we get to see with her and her encounter with Jesus is also true for Peter and John, even if they don't believe it yet, and it's also true for all of us. And this moves us into the second thing we get to see today, that if if Jesus is risen, then we have him. Let's read the next few verses, 11 through 16. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept, uh, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Sweet. Uh, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. Um, Probably make a few guesses, but I was talking with uh, Pastor Michael, I don't know, like um, a month or so ago, and we were just talking about some heavier stuff uh, that has landed in his lap and weighs on his mind or whatever that he gets to wrestle with as part of his responsibilities and relationships that he gets to put down now for uh, a little bit. And we had talked about all the things and basically said all there was that needed to be said. And Graham was just like, yeah, what are you going to do? And I replied, 
Well, you could cry about it. And that's not sarcastic. I actually meant that, right? I, that says more about me than it does anything else. Like, I, I've literally cried at Volkswagen commercials before. That's not a joke. That's real. Thank you. Thank you. But the sentiment is true. Sometimes the best response to something heartbreaking is to weep. Some things deserve to have tears shed over, and maybe that's not doing anything, but it is saying something. It's expressing the value that something has or what something or someone means for better or for worse. I, I cried at a Volkswagen commercial not because I have deep feelings for German-engineered vehicles, all right, but because I love my kids, and the marketing team at Volkswagen engineered a commercial that made me feel things about my children, right? And so that's why I was crying at that commercial. And Mary here, who apparently came back to the tomb with Peter and John, she didn't know what to do, but she didn't want to go back home as if nothing had happened, like Peter and John. So, so she stayed, and she wept. She, she cried about it. If any tears ever deserved to be shed in all of human history, it were these tears. Because Jesus is worth some tears. If he goes missing... <laughs> Jesus goes missing, you better weep. Right? If, if he feels like he's missing in your life, it's okay for, for you to weep because Jesus should mean the world to us. I, I'm sure that Mary wanted to know what happened to him, right? Wanted to get down to figure out what was going on, but more than that, she wanted him to know where Jesus was and to go there. Whom are you seeking? The, the gardener, quote unquote, asked Mary And Mary says, look, if you've, if you've taken him somewhere, just show me where so I can take care of his body. She just wanted him. In Mary's mind, Jesus couldn't cast any more demons out of her. He was done performing miracles. He had said his final words to her and to everybody else. Jesus was, was dead, and he was gone, and he was done, and yet she was as devoted to him as ever, which leads me to a thing I want us to see this morning, which is that Jesus himself is always worth your devotion. There's a beautiful way that Mary gets to uniquely honor Jesus because she lived during the couple of days when there was literally nothing more that she could get from him. He was, in her mind, dead. There was, there was nothing more he could do for her, and yet she's still just as devoted at that gravesite as she was on any hillside where she got to sit and listen to him teach or feed thousands of people. She was devoted to him, not just what he could do for her. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, like how true is that for you? It's just a question to consider. Like if you stripped away all of the, the needs and the asks and the expectations from your relationship with Jesus, what would be left? Would there still be a, a vibrant desire to pursue him and to know him just for who he is? And the second thing to observe from all this is, is this, and this is maybe especially for us who sometimes feel like Jesus is MIA. Jesus is always where he should be. Just because Jesus isn't where we think he should be, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't actually where he should be. Mary didn't just weep, all right? Like, she looked for him while she wept. Probably not helpful to, like, look with tears in your eyes or whatever, but for the third time, someone stooped into the tomb to look, thinking that that's, like, where Jesus is supposed to be. But he's not there. And this time, instead of just fabric, there's angels hanging out 
in there. And if it seems weird that Mary's not like freaked out because angels are in the tomb, that's because lots of the time in the Bible, angels take on a pretty normal appearance. They look like normal people. So she just basically sees two guys hanging out, sitting in Jesus' tomb, right? Maybe they're landscapers hanging out on a lunch break, don't know who she thought that they might be. And they say, why are you weeping? And this gardener who kind of like the angels, he doesn't reveal the true nature of who he really is. He asks the same thing. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? There's an, an edge to these questions and it's not, it's not rude. It's not mean. It's not corrective, but it's like phrased in a way that says like, what's the deal? Everything looks fine to us. Clearly a, a tomb has been opened. The stone has been moved. There's used fabric laying around everywhere. You could probably still smell like the burial spices. Two guys are are hanging out in what is clearly a freshly used tomb, and they're like, what? Like, is something wrong? Is somebody missing? Here's the point. Mary and John and Peter knew exactly where Jesus was supposed to be that morning, except that was exactly where Jesus wasn't supposed to be. Jesus was never supposed to be in that tomb on that day of that week no one was missing. Nothing was out of place, especially Jesus. The disciples were the only ones who were lost and out of sorts. How often do we think that, that we know where Jesus should be and what he should be doing and then feel disappointed when he doesn't live up to our expectations? Look, you won't hear me minimize uh, the disillusionment that some of you have had and in, in your experiences in life and spirituality and all the things, some of you here should probably be more messed up than I think you really are based on stuff you've gone through, all right? Uh, we all go through things and we might go to the Lord for help or for comfort uh, in the place that we think we'll find him in the way that we think that we're gonna find him to get the help that we think that he's gonna give us only to not find that and to wonder where the heck he is. And that experience of feeling like Jesus is missing does not make you any less of a follower of Jesus than it made Mary, who was deeply devoted to Jesus and also deeply confused and grieved. But it also means that those same experiences that you've had don't make Jesus any less faithful or present or real in your life than he was in Mary's, even when she didn't realize it. Jesus was approached by all sorts of people before he died. The, the poor and the sick and the proud and the rich and the powerful and the needy and the greedy. All sorts of people. There's no one who can't approach Jesus. But if any of us genuinely are curious about knowing the real Jesus, then we have to come with at least a little humility and acknowledge that like Mary, sometimes our disillusionment and our disappointment with the Lord is a product of our own expectations and assumptions that we bring into a real relationship with him. But what comes with that, if we, if we stay and we linger there, like, Jesus, or like Mary stayed and lingered at the tomb, like the place of her confusion and grief, is that, that Jesus might reveal himself and an even deeper understanding of the gospel that doesn't ask, if he's risen, then, then why isn't everything better in my life? But instead, it asks, if he's risen, then what in my life could ever keep him from me? That's the question. Why do you think it was such a powerful moment for Mary to hear her name? I'm pretty sure half of the female Jewish population in that time was named Mary. 
literally, it's all over the New Testament. So she'd heard Jesus say Mary a million times and all the Marys around him would probably have to say, Mary who? Like which one? Who, which of us are you talking about? Right, that's what would happen. But, but what made this mention of her name so powerful was that she had heard with her own ears the final cry of the voice that had cast out her demons and she was sure she would never hear that again. But on that morning, Jesus refused to meet Mary's expectations in the best way. He said her name. Where she thought Jesus should be was way worse than where he actually was. The substance of the gospel isn't that Jesus never died. It wasn't an avoidance of pain or of grief or of confusion or longing for himself or for his disciples. It's that he did die, but he couldn't stay dead. There will be mourning, and he can turn it to joy. Our expectations, they will be shattered, but he will never let us down. That even when we think he's dead, and he's gone, and he is done, he's actually alive and well and still at work with, with your name on his lips as he's praying for you and calling to you. Part of our discipleship, or maybe part of our conversion and belief for the first time this morning, might be letting some of our expectations die precisely because Jesus lives. But the fact that Jesus is risen doesn't just mean that we have him, but in some ways it means that he has us, even when we don't know it, which leads us to our third thing this morning. We'll, we'll look at the, next, the last two verses in our passage, John 20, 17 through 18. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Third point this morning is this, that if Jesus has ascended, he has it all. Uh, we watched, our family watched The Sandlot uh, with our kids for the first time uh, a month or two ago. It's a classic 1993 film about a bunch of boys who love playing baseball, right? They're not on a team. Uh, they just go to a dusty ball field every day, all day during the summer. They do nothing but play ball. Uh, and so, like, there's no score. They don't, they don't keep score. They, don't, they just play all day. They just love the game. And there's a, there's a scene um, in that movie where kids from, like, the real baseball team, they show up in their uniform on their bikes and all that stuff, and, uh, and they just start, like, heckling the group of kids that were falling around. And it's a, it's a classic name-calling fest, back and forth. Uh, you mix your Wheaties with your mama's toe jam. You bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it. And the one that shuts down the whole thing is this. You play ball like a girl. From the corner of my eyes, I, I see Mabel, who's our oldest daughter, just like turn and look at me and glare at me as if, like, what is this chauvinist trash? <laughs> that you have, you're making me watch from the old days of the 90s. What is this? The reality is on uh, Carrick's baseball team, he's one of our twins, uh, at the top of the batting lineup is a girl, right? She's pretty killer. And our, our record might be a little bit different this season if everyone played like her, all right? And, and hey, the record of the church might be a little different if we all preach the gospel like our girl Mary. We should preach Mary's gospel. I'll unpack what that means. Um, clearly, since Jesus is risen, like Mary, Mary gets Jesus back, right? Like she's got him. She's excited. Uh, she wants to hang on to him and not let him go. But Jesus' next words are, hey, you're going to have to let me go. 
I can't stay here because I'm, I'm not done. I've, I've risen from the dead, but I've still got to go up and be with God the Father, yours and mine. Um, this passage, funny enough, like it's not just about the resurrection. It is about the ascension, Jesus ascending to heaven to take his place next to God the Father on a seat, on a heavenly throne to rule and reign as king. Not just king of the Jews, like what Pilate wrote, mocking him on the sign above the cross, but, but king of the cosmos, who's working to one day bring the universe and all of human history under his perfect order and justice and grace. And listen, like, this is the good news that, that Jesus told Mary to deliver to the disciples. The good news about his ascension, right? When was the ascension or even the resurrection part of the gospel the last time that you shared it? Like these are what bring the gospel home, the resurrection and the ascension. But, but some of our gospels have an empty throne when we share them, and some of our gospels have a, a, a hole in it as big as the empty tomb. The gospel does not start with sin and end with the cross. That is very important for us to know. The gospel begins with a good and beautiful creation, and it ends with a new beginning of a new and good and beautiful creation where God and his people are together again in glory. Sin is a part of that story, and the cross is a part of that good news. It's essential that Jesus paid the price for our sin, but the resurrection is the receipt, and it's the first taste of that new creation that death can be undone, and the ascension is the teeth behind Jesus' promise to one day make a footrest, a lazy boy, ottoman, or a coffee table on which he's going to put all of his enemies on that and his feet on top of that. And he's going to conquer sin and death and evil and suffering for all of his people once and for all. He can do that and we can trust him to do that because God the Father has literally given him that power and authority and he is wielding it right now in his own mysterious but faithful ways as he sits on a throne in heaven. Where is Jesus right now? That's where he is. He's not still on the cross. He is not in a tomb. He is not roaming around the world like risen but MIA or disguising himself as one of us or any of those things. He is sitting human body and divine nature on a real throne reigning over you and me and everybody in this basement and everybody on this planet right now. Don't leave that part out of the good news. Tell people where Jesus is right now because it shapes our faith in every way. It speaks to so much more than just his power to forgive every bit of sin in our life. It, it, it even speaks more to his power to, to comfort us in every suffering through the resurrection. But where Jesus is right now, it proclaims his full power to put an end to every bit of sin and suffering and evil one day. The good news of the ascension puts to bed our fears that he is not around, but not by telling us that he's always sitting next to us on the couch or that we can look back and literally see his, his footprints behind us when we look back in the sand or any of those things, but it puts to bed our fears by telling us that he's somewhere so much better for us. He is on the throne of God. This is the gospel that Mary preached. Jesus has it all. I know some of us want Jesus to like show up in our living room to prove to us that he's real in some way. Like, like why wouldn't he do that? If he's so powerful and can do whatever, then why can't he show up and prove himself 
to me, and I'm, I'm not saying he can't, I'm not saying he won't do that if he wants to, but my question is, why would you be more compelled by Jesus in your living room than you are by Jesus in the throne room? Like, I could show up and sit on your futon. I can do that. Like, what I can't do is go sit where Jesus is sitting right now. That is way more impressive. Mary had Jesus right next to her, right there, and he still told her, you gotta let me be where I need to be, not here for your good. And so maybe we should kind of kick around like why we think Jesus would say and do something different to us. And look, that was the news that Mary was excited to tell everybody about. Not that Jesus was staying, but that he was going. The ascension didn't ruin her day, it made her life. Right? This whole passage began with Mary running to the disciples in panic. And now she's running to tell them that he's alive and well and he's not done. The news changed Mary. The ascension changed her and her message. And so if we're wanting Jesus to show up here somewhere, we should wonder why where Jesus is right now isn't as impressive to us as it seemed to be to Mary. The second thing from this little chunk is, is this, that we don't just get to preach Mary's gospel, but, but Mary's get to preach. Back in the day, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. It held no weight in formal systems or structures or anything at all. And yet Jesus decided to reveal himself to Mary in a way that he didn't to Peter and John, who, who together, because there were two of them and because they were dudes, they could have automatically gotten a hearing and admission into court, and people would have believed what they had to say. But he showed up to Mary, and then he sent Mary out. I was chatting with Kelly about this passage a long time ago, and uh, she was driving home the point that Jesus wasn't being patronizing here. He's not throwing women a bone, all right? He's not trying to just make them feel better. But, but, but he chose her first and foremost, not to score political points or cultural points, but because she was the one who was there. She was the one who was there. And so everybody else went home. And that doesn't diminish Mary's role or the significance that she's a woman. On the contrary, it emphasizes a point that Jesus made during his entire earthly ministry that God will gather in and he will scatter out all of the Marys. Anyone and everyone who has the humility to not just come and see, but to stay and linger and learn and see him for who he really is, regardless of their social status or their, the dings on their record or anything at all. And their testimony counts. It matters. And so Jesus sent the girl who called him teacher to tell the boys in hiding the good news, which wasn't just good news for them, but it's good news for all of us who want a part to play in his kingdom. Mary Magdalene blazed the trail for the other Marys of the world to get to preach the gospel to the world, not on our own authority, right, but under Jesus' authority who rose and ascended and called and commissioned all who are his. It's pretty good. The marvelous thing about Jesus' tomb wasn't what was in it. It's what wasn't there, and it's what still isn't there, and what, what never will be there. It's what, what was supposed to be there. Hey, it couldn't stay there and has been somewhere else for thousands of years in a place where there are no tombs. Only thrones, only glory, only God. That's where Jesus is. Where Jesus is today shapes 
our faith in every way. So now as we enter a time of response, we get to ask, where are you? Talked about where Jesus is. Where are you? Band, you guys can come on up. Uh, Before he died and rose and ascended, Jesus, he left a place for his people to gather around a table Sometimes literally as a, as a full meal and sometimes uh, as, a, as figuratively as communion, but, but always around his table, like what we have up here, where Peter's and John's and Mary's, his followers who don't get it all, and skeptical believers and, and people who are disappointed, disciples who are devoted but are grieved, everybody who calls Jesus teacher and Lord like Mary, like, like we get to be reminded that we don't earn our seat at his table. We don't cling to him as much as he holds on to us and carries us here. Communion that we're about to celebrate, it is not, it's not a, a relic of some uh, dead leader who's buried somewhere. It's a reminder from our living God that his living body was once broken in our place. That's what the bread up here signifies, that his blood was once shed for us, for our sins. That's what the juice signifies, and and he did that so that we might share in the peace and the life that he is now enjoying right here and right now on the throne in heaven. We get to enjoy a piece of that. It's our invitation for you this morning. If you're a believer here, I encourage you. You can read some questions that'll be up on the screen. You can sit and you can pray. You can sing with the band. If you would like to participate in communion, just ask that you would reflect. What is the Lord stirring in you today to repent if there's sin that needs to be repented of there? To, to reconcile, if there are people you need to reconcile with, to give thanks to God for what he has done. And you get to come up here and celebrate by taking the bread and the juice, what Jesus has done for you. If you're not a believer, then this table's not for you yet. We would love it to be. Jesus is for you. We are for you. would love to talk with you more about where you are. Uh, I will be back there uh, against that wall to pray with you. There'll be some people over by that red tree who would love to talk and pray with you as well. What I invite you to do at this point in time is to sit to pray, see what God is stirring in you, and invite you to respond in whatever way God might be encouraging you to today.